0: Again, let me say good morning. So much of our attitude, so much of our outlook on life, really so much of our happiness is not so much contingent upon what happens to us, it's contingent upon expectations. I want to talk this morning about expectations. Would you agree with me? It's not so much what happens, it's Did it meet your expectations? Oh, wow, you know, that that wasn't quite what I expected, we say. Or, I don't know, that really wasn't that bad. I don't know what I expected, but it certainly wasn't as bad as I expected from that sermon. Or whatever it is, right? It's expectations that matter. It's not so much what happens, it's what did you expect? Was the expectation met? When Jackie and I were engaged to be married, it um, it was uncanny. How many people took it upon themselves to give this, you know, this couple, these fiance's, starry-eyed, romance, uh, I'm gonna tell them what to expect in marriage. Many people felt that God had laid on their heart that they were supposed to come and tell us what to expect in marriage. I don't know if, that, if you're married, if that happened to you, if people came to you, or if you are a married couple who now feels that you want to do that to other people. Uh, but either way, uh, folks would come, listen, guys, it was like alarming, shocking. How many people would pull me aside and be like, Brother Tom, Brother Tom. That first year of marriage is tough, tough, tough. I mean, one nightmarish week after another. It's just a dumpster fire. I tell you, if you can get through that, I'm like, what are you talking about, right? People told me to expect your first year of marriage, everything's changed and it's all different and all that, you know, you leave love at the altar and take up endurance. And, you know, and I'm like, what? Apparently, like, these people had these really, and they were, they just wanted me prepared. So Jackie and I, our first year of marriage was like blissfully happy. We were happy as claims. And I remember our first year of marriage looking at each other like, babe, we must be doing something wrong. We're supposed to be miserable. <laughs> they told us we're going to be miserable. What are we doing wrong, right? It was all about expectations. Now, the point is not whether, if you're married, whether your first year of marriage was rocky or was, that's not the point. The point is so much of our attitude and so much of our happiness is not based on what it's really like. It's based on what we were trained to expect or what we were, what were we expecting? Let's change the metaphor from your first year of marriage to a journey because that applies to all of you. If you are a Christian, you started a journey with Jesus Christ. Let me ask you point blank. What were you told to expect on this journey? What were you told to expect being a Christian was like? Because I'm convinced that changes everything. And so much of what we hear being a Christian is like does not come from God's word. It comes from the world. And it is really harming Christians. What were you you taught to expect? If you're going on a journey, let's say you're taking a plane Plane ride, plane trip. And it's one of those um, uh, airplanes where you have to walk out onto the tarmac and then board the stairs, let's just say. And as you're making your way out to the airplane, folks are greeting you, top of the morning to you. Every flight attendant you meet is, what can we do to make your flight comfortable? You hear the word comfortable a hundred times. Here's some peanuts to make you comfortable. Can I get you a soft drink? What's gonna make you? And the pilot says, our goal is your comfort. It's all about comfortable. And then, when you get close to your destination, you get rocked with some real turbulence. You're looking around, and you said, comfortable. This is scary, right? And you're praying, and you're right? You're looking around. What's going to happen? And then you make it, and you get off the plane, and you go, oh, that was terrible. It was a terrible experience. Okay, back up. What if, what if, however, on your way to the airplane, what if, what if you come upon a flight attendant, and she's got this wild look in her eye, like... Sir, here's a life preserver, here's a prayer book, good luck, get on, right? What is happening? You go a little further, and people who just arrived on the inbound flight, they get off the flight with this crazed look, that was the most insane thing we have ever experienced. I am horrified, right? By this point, you guys, some of you are like, that's it, I'm driving, thank you, I will not be getting on this. I mean, right, people are coming, the pilot's like, I don't know, I don't know, but just expect, just buckle up and pray, right? Kids that came in on the inbound are getting off the plane like, that was better than Disney, right? You're going, what happened? Something happened on this plane ride, and the pilot just says, all I can promise you is we're gonna get there alive. That's literally all I will promise. And then you get there, and you go through this terrible turbulence, but you land, what do you say when you land? What do you say? You go, well, that, well, it really wasn't so bad. It wasn't all that. What's the difference? It's the same turbulence. What's the difference? In one case, you were told the plane ride is about your comfort, and you were scared to death of the turbulence. The other, you were told about the turbulence, and honestly, pleasantly surprised that you just made it there safe. Right? It's all about expectations. Okay, so what did you expect? What, I don't mean necessarily, though I could mean, what were the words of the evangelist when you came to faith in Jesus Christ? Whether that evangelist was Billy Graham or a preacher or your grandma on a picnic table talk, you know, talking to you around a, a little dinner table and, and sharing Christ. I, it doesn't matter. It could be the words, but, but more than that, what was the intimations? What were the hints leading up? What did you hear coming to Christ was gonna be like? What does it mean to be a Christian? Were you told it, it's going it's to give you a thrilling spiritual experience? Was it told it was going to be intellectually satisfying? Were you told you were going to be given peace? Were you told all your problems were going to go away? Were you told that if you come follow Christ, you'll finally get the peace of mind you're looking for? What was it? Because it rattly, radically affects this journey we're on. Well, today's text, and it is, it is jarring, today's text comes right smack in the middle of Mark. And we've reached the point where there's a great, uh, a partial, I should say, unveiling of who Christ is. And the disciples call it out. So turn to Mark chapter 8. We'll start in verse 27. Mark 8, 27. And here's what we're going to see. Expectations are all over this passage. And we are going to see two things. One, what it means to be Messiah, or if you prefer, what it means to be the Christ. You know that Messiah and Christ are the same thing, right? Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. It's his title, Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. Christ is just Greek, Messiah is Hebrew. It's the same word. So if you call yourself a Christian and tomorrow you want to start calling yourself a Messiah and I'd be fine with that, same thing. You just to switch to Hebrew, fine. That's fine. Um, so, so, so what it means to be Christ or what it means to be Messiah, and the second thing is, obviously by extension, what it means to be a follower of Messiah if here are the expectations for what it means to be Messiah, here's what it means to be a follower of Messiah. Or if you prefer modern parlance, if this is what it means to be Christ, here's what it means to be a Christian, Christian. okay? Um, let me say this at the outset. These are such important verses. They weigh so heavy on my heart. I felt such a burden in preparing. M- these are verses that have launched careers in missionaries. Th- 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 these verses are going to weigh heavy on you, uh, I-, I think, today. So we're going to break it up over two Sundays. And we're going to take these verses and we're going to spread them apart over two Sundays. And I'll just say this. And this is probably something I need to probably say from time to time. Um, so I, I cannot promise you that every sermon you hear from me will be entertaining. I mean, I, I hope some of them are. I mean, you know, occasionally. Uh, uh, but I can promise you that every time we open up God's word, it will be important. Does that make sense? I won't waste your time with stuff that's not important. Every time we come to God's Word, it may not always be entertaining, but it's always going to be something of life and death importance. Otherwise, we need to find something else to do with our Sunday mornings. This is one of those messages where it just bears, bears repeating. It may not be the most entertaining thing, oh, but the importance Now that you're all scared to death, sorry, I just, I just mean it's 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 a great. Well, you'll know. perhaps you'll know the passage. Here we go. What it means to be Messiah. It's taken him eight chapters to get to this to get to this point. Jesus has just healed most recently a blind man, and he healed him in stages. It was a very unique healing. And then chapter twenty, uh, sorry, chapter eight, verse twenty-seven. Jesus went on with his disciples. Remember that the Gospel of Mark is all about. People asking, who is Jesus? Who this person is? Remember in uh, Mark 4, when Jesus calmed the storm, what do the disciples ask? Who is this man? They're like, wind and waves obey him? And Mark's like, exactly, that's the question. He gives away the answer in the first verse. In Mark 1, 1, he tells you, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, sorry, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Christ, son of God. He is Messiah, he is son of God. It takes eight chapters, and not a single human has it, has it occurred to that he's Messiah. You know who has pointed out these he's Messiah, by the way? You know who hasn't missed it, the whole gospel? Every time they get it right? The demons. The demons have been spot on. They know exactly, you're the Messiah. We know exactly who you are. But so far, no human has, has pointed out he's Messiah. Well, now we've gone eight chapters, done all these miracles. Okay, guys, he's got to know. He's asking his disciples. Okay, what's it going to be? Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples I love this. He doesn't just come right out and ask, "Who do you say I am?" Come on, guys, quiz time. You've been with the eight chapters. Who am I? Instead, he he kind of he kind of comes at it through the side door. On the way, he asks his disciples, "Like, and this is so brilliant. Like, who do who do people say that I am?" Uh, this is brilliant, by the way. If you ever teach a youth Bible study, young people, I taught youth Bible studies for year and year. we would do this all the time. You would never say to a group of youth, um, "Okay, kids, we want to help you with your sins and struggles. What?" are your sins? What are your, What do you struggle with? You would never do that because I'm already nervous. I'm in the eighth grade or I'm a sophomore whatever. Right? I'm not going to be like, well, you know this. So here's how, here's how we would do it all the time. We'd be like, so like, like what would you say like some of your peers struggle with, you know? And they'd be like, oh, well, I have this friend, who, and they go on and on and on, you know, and they're either talking about themselves or sometimes like way too specific, and they're looking at, I have a friend, it's you, right, and they describe it, either way, it like helps them talk, that's what Jesus is doing, who do people say that I am, what's our poll numbers, how are we doing in the swing states, well, they, verse 28, and they told him the usual answers, they thought, and this is pretty complimentary stuff, they told him, well, some, I mean, John the Baptist, a lot of people were saying John the Baptist, back from the dead, they got that from Herod, others say Elijah, but they were fascinated with Elijah, because if you are waiting for Messiah to come, you can understand why. In the Old Testament, Elijah has something very specific about him that didn't wasn't true of everybody else. Elijah like never physically died. Remember, he was taken up in a chariot of fire, and so he's got some body somewhere hanging out. So they just figured they figured Elijah would like come back, and that would usher in the Messianic age. So Elijah's somehow special, and they were fascinated with Elijah. So they figured maybe you're Elijah. A lot of people said Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Not a prophet, like the prophets. Not like Haggai or Zechariah, one of the ones nobody reads. You like Isaiah, okay? You're like one of the prophets. This is very complimentary. It's a problem. Problem. Problem is what? The problem is it's so complimentary. I mean, it, he's in great company, isn't he? I mean, JTB, Elijah, one of the prophets. This is, These are the big names and like Judaism, right then, that's the problem. Why? Because anytime you put Jesus in among a list of all the other greats, you've immediately degraded his glory. He's not in a category. He's not in a list alongside all the others. He's not a good teacher like Muhammad or or the Buddha or Confucius. He's the conquering king risen from the dead. So he's outside of category. So, So that's what everybody's saying, though. Pretty complimentary, but Jesus doesn't want your compliments. He wants your life. So now he brings it to a very personal level, and he asked them, verse 29, who do you say that I am? This is the question, fellas. What's it going to be? This is, and can I just say, this is the question of the gospel of Mark, and this is the question of the whole Bible, and this is like the question that you don't ever need to get distracted from. This is the question, and I'll ask you point blank today. What do you say about Jesus Christ? Who is he? Who is he? Who is Jesus? Is he he who he says he is? Is he he the crucified Lord? Is he risen from the dead? Is he ascended on high? Because if he is, then you owe him total allegiance, unquestioned. And if he's not, we should all really go do something else on a Sunday morning. Who is he? Not not what does your friend say about him. What do you say about him? You know, people always will always try to distract you from this question and bury this question. Happens all the time. One way it happens is in the news. All the time I read this. Here's a news story about evangelicals. Yes, evangelicals. Who are these evangelicals? And they do a news report about how evangelicals tend to vote and what evangelicals' political persuasions are and what evangelicals think of the latest hot-button issue. And I always want to be like, if a dead Nazarene Jew got up and walked out of a grave, y'all have seriously missed the headline. You have buried the only question that matters. Who is he? Who is he? He gets buried. And I'm going, guys, if... If a, if those lungs started breathing, if that heart started beating, you've missed the you've missed the point. That's all that matters. Who is he? So I ask you, who is he? Another way this gets covered up. I've seen this over and over. Maybe you're watching this online right now, and this is your experience. Maybe you're here in the room. I remember a oh, oh, sweet older woman pleaded with me, "Please go talk to my husband. Go talk to my husband. He needs Jesus. He's an old man. He, you know, he refuses." So I go out, and talk to him, standing out by his barn, and this guy looks at me, and I said, "Come on, man." What are you doing? You've you got to receive Jesus. Who is he? And, and instead of answering, who is he? You know what he told me? I ain't going back to church. He didn't mean this church or any, He just meant church in general. And he started naming all the people who called themselves Christians that had hurt him. And the church did this, and this church did that, and this church did that. You see, and, I, I, and he did all this stuff. And I said, do you realize you're burying under all that the one question that really matters? You still haven't answered. Who is Jesus? I'm so sorry people have hurt you. And I'm so sorry, especially because the people who hurt you claim to follow Jesus. But let me tell you something. If a dead Nazarene got up and walked out of a grave, you need to get over what you got to get over. You label me whatever you want. You can label me whatever you want. Or you can say, I did this, or he did that, or she did that, and he didn't do that. But if a dead Jew is risen from the dead, I'm with him. What say you? Well, these people hurt you're burying the only question that matters. Church, don't ever get it twisted. That is the question. What do you say about Jesus? There's a where. It's hidden in verse 27. But there's a where, a when, and a who in this question. The where is, notice where this question got asked. I'll give you hints in verse 27. Well, you helped him out. Caesarea Philippi. What's Caesarea Philippi? It's a city. Herod the Tetrarch gave the very northern part of Israel. This is, this is where it stops being Israel, pretty much becomes pagan. But there's a city up there, and uh, it's an ancient city, a pagan city, and 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 he gave it to his son Philip. Now, so he called him Herod, Herod Philip was his name. Philip wanted to name that city Philippi because, you know, you know Kind of, I got a city. But he also wanted to get in good with the big boss, Caesar. And so he did what a lot of smart kings did. They would name their city Caesarea Philippi to get in good with Caesar, right? But he still gets his name in there, Caesarea Philippi. So he's got Caesarea Philippi, and over and over is uh, uh, these little temples, these little shrines in honor to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord, they would all say. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is divine. You could go and worship at the altars of the state. But Caesarea Philippi is not the original name of the city. The original name of the city is Panace. It's the city devoted to the Greek god Pan. You ever heard of Pan? Half goat, half man, kind of pantheism. It's all around nature, uh, the nature god. So he renamed it from Panace to uh, uh, Caesarea Philippi, which means you. Jesus asked, What do you say about me? As he's standing all around him, here's a temple Caesar is Lord. Here you can come worship Pan. You got all these gods. What Jesus is saying is, I want to know in public, in front of all these other gods. This is not sequestered away in some cult. This isn't, when we proclaim Jesus is Lord, have you ever noticed why we do that at a baptism? And I ask everybody to say it. Because this is a bold proclamation. One of my favorite things at a baptism is that third question I ask him: And is it your desire today to tell the world that you are for King Jesus? And they say, yes, Jesus is Lord. Why? Because we don't make our decisions for Christ hidden away in some cult. Okay, put on your burial shroud. Okay, oh, do you, what do you think about Jesus? No, right in the middle of everywhere, right, right in the middle of your workplace. Do the people at your work know you stand for Jesus Christ? I mean, right in the middle of Walmart. Is it clear? Look at that. He's for Jesus Christ. Look at the way he shops or what? I don't know how they know, right? Being courteous. Whatever, right? Look, do do people know boldly? In other words, it was asked at Caesarea Philippi. It wasn't asked, hidden away in a corner. Jesus wants to know, who do you say that I am? The other thing is the when. Notice verse 27, on the way. When did he ask him? On the way. Mark is in three, a drama in three acts. Act one, the region around the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. Act three, Jerusalem, as you might guess. Act two, all these chapters from like eight to like 10 12, 10-ish, is on the way from the north down south to Jerusalem. And so he asks him on the way. Why is that so important? Jesus asks his disciples who he is on the way, not at the end of the journey when everything's made clear. It's the same for you. This applies to you. You don't get to decide about Jesus at the end of your life when everything's made clear. He wants to know now. What do you say about me now while we're still What? on the way. No, nobody, nobody gets to know the end of our story. You got to live your life from the middle of the book, man. So he asks you, he wants to know, do you have faith? Do you believe in me? When? On the way. Listen to me carefully. If you wait, He, he didn't get to, he didn't ask Peter this after the resurrection and the ascension. Oh, and there he is in all his power and glory. Now, Peter, who do you say that I am? No, no, no. On the way when there's still all these questions and there's still all these doubts, do you realize that's your life? That's what you're being asked? He's not gonna wait until, if you wait to decide for Jesus Christ, to decide he is who he is, in fact, if you wait until all things are clear, you will have waited eternally too late you will be perfectly clear about if you deny Jesus, if you refuse him, well, I'm gonna wait till the end. I'm gonna get a little more evidence. I'm gonna analyze a few more things. If you keep delaying this, it will be perfectly clear who Jesus is, but you'll be in hell for all eternity if you wait too late. So the question is not when you get to the end, what's it gonna be? It's on the way, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say? There was a where, a when, and a who. Who do you say? Let's be honest, real talk some of you are only in church because your mom has dragged you here (laughs) or your wife dragged you here or you at least started coming to church because somebody dragged you here or right now you're watching this online under threat of force somebody has put you on the couch and said you were listening to this sermon and i don't care how long he preaches we're not getting up we're here and we're going to watch this okay um Here's the thing. Over time, what you'll start to do is you'll start to say, "Oh yeah, I, I go to that church. Yeah, well, you know, I married this woman, and she, she, religion's like a big part of her life. Faith is a big part of her life. So I want to be a good husband. So I want to, I want to, I want to make sure I honor her faith, and I want to be a part of her faith. You see, it's all about her faith. And and you know, I, I'm not really into this stuff, but my kids, man, there's great kids programs, and and the student ministry's so great. So I'm going to come because my kids, they need to be fed uh, the Bible teaching, and I want them to have all that stuff and know the songs. And so I'm going to, you see, everything's about their faith their faith and mama's faith that Jesus is not dealing this morning with your mama's faith or your wife's faith or your kid's faith. He's asking, well, who do you say that I am? I'll deal with them later. Deal with, deal with them in, in their own way. But who do you say that I am? So who's it, what's it going to be, fellas? Come on, man. I, I've been with you eight chapters. You've seen me. You see me cast out all those demons, then I did all those healings. Remember you saw me at my baptism. You saw the sky ripped open. You were there, right? You you remember I did all those healings. Peter, I healed your mother-in-law right? I did all, remember uh, remember the the the, the 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 lepers? I cleansed the lepers. Remember the paralytic lowered through the roof by his four friends? You guys were right there. You saw me forgive that man's sin and heal him, right? You saw me in the synagogue heal the man with the with the withered hand and the, the crowds loved me and the Pharisees hated me. You saw me pack everybody up and go on the other side of the lake and all, while we were there you saw me calm a storm and the wind and wave obeyed me. Then when we got to the other side of the lake you saw me heal the Garrison demoniac. He had a legion of demons and I made those demons go into the the pigs. Remember the pigs? And then when we, when we came back across the lake, I healed all those people. When we came back, you, you saw me heal the woman with the issue of blood. She'd been bleeding for 12 years. Then you saw me raise Jairus' his 12-year-old girl back from the dead. Then I did even more healings. We went back across the lake, and that time I walked on water. I healed everybody. I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish on my way back. I healed a deaf person, a mute person, then the Syrophoenician woman, and then fed 4,000. People. Most recently, I healed a blind man in stages. So, who am I, fellas? What's it gonna be? Now, the disciples give a very interesting answer. And they're right, but they're not fully right. Most Bible teachers believe that the reason the healing of the blind man in two stages comes right before Peter's confession of Christ. Sorry, do you know the story? um, So he did a healing of a blind guy just before this great confession we're about to see. Uh, Why the healing of the blind guy? It was a very unique healing because usually when Jesus healed people, uh, they were healed. This one was different. Do you remember? Blind guy, Jesus comes up to heal him uses spit, right, gets the guy, touches him, bless him. Okay, what do you see? And the guy opens his eyes, expecting to see, and he's like, huh. Um, so like like definitely an improvement for which most grateful. Um, but honestly, like I'd say about like 2,100, you know. He's like, all right, rolls up his sleeve, all right. Try again, does it again. Now what? Whoa, I see perfectly clear. Thanks for the two-stage healing. Seems a little odd, but I'll take it, right? Why? Why the two stages? Guys, guys, he can walk on water. He can feed 5,000. He can raise a girl from the dead. Do you really think he needed two cracks at the blind guys healing to get it right? Of course not. What was he doing? It was a perfect, no pun intended, visual aid. Of exactly what's being unveiled in mark it takes eight chapters for somebody to see the first thing mark said in mark 1:1, he's the Messiah he's the Son of God it takes eight chapters for somebody to see he's Messiah but they don't see it fully it takes another eight chapters for a Roman centurion to say surely this man is the Son of God so it's coming in stages. Now, before we pick on the disciples, let's at least celebrate that when Peter answered him. Here it is. Peter answered him. Let's not be too hard on him. They get this part right, okay? You, oh, and he's got a wild look in his eye. Oh, Jesus, we know who you are. We've been doing the math on this. Whoo! You, you're the one. Thou art the Messiah. You are the Christ. You're the one. Oh, and we've been thinking about this for a long time. Some of us have known this since like chapter three. Others of us, it took chapter six. Some of us still doubt it. Thomas. I was like, hey, but well, we know who you are. You're Messiah, and we know what Messiah means. When Messiah comes, you are going to be a military leader. You are going to be strong. You are going to be powerful. And we've been getting kicked around by the Romans, but now we're going to do the kicking. You are going to lead a great revolt. You're going to take down Caesar. And when Messiah comes, they've already done the math. When Messiah comes, we're going to be in power. When Messiah comes, we're going to be on top. Messiah is a winner. It's going to be victorious. And when Messiah comes, I'm going to be Secretary of State. They're already thinking. Peter's like, I'm gonna be vice president, right? Philip's like, I'm gonna be, uh, 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 you know, uh, secretary of defense, right? Judas is like, secretary of treasury, right? Whatever it is, they've all got it picked out. James and John are already fighting about who's gonna be lieutenant governor. Woo, we know what Messiah means. Messiah means power. And that's why Jesus says the next verse, uh, he strictly charged them. Tell, tell no one. Why? They're not wrong that he's the Messiah, they're very wrong in their expectations of what Messiah is. They're wrong in what Christ is. So Jesus tells them, hey, you guys are so abysmally far off in your understanding of Messiah Messiah, that I'm going to need you not to tell anybody, okay? Until you what? Until you sit down and learn some stuff about what Messiah is. Oh, Jesus, you don't have to know. We can tell you what Messiah is. Messiah is going to win many things and be embraced by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be enthroned and after that live happily ever after. Jesus said it this way. Actually, he began to teach him the Son of Man must suffer many things and be embraced by, no, 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 rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be enthroned no and be killed and after three days rise again and he said this plainly and the disciples are like it's one thing to like have your own spin on messiah like i'm going to be a conquering hero but instead of using tanks, I'm going to use the Air Force or whatever, right? It's another thing entirely to, like, deconstruct the literal definition of what Messiah is. Messiah is a conquering hero. There is no category for a suffering Messiah. When As soon as, as, soon as Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer, Peter and the disciples are like, whoa, whoa, th- 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 that's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a suffering Messiah. That's like jumbo shrimp. That's like fried ice. I do realize and acknowledge that I lost some of you for the rest of the sermon. You're like, fried ice? You reckon I could fry ice? Take you to the county fair? I bet I could food truck with fried ice. It's not, that's not the point. The point is, by definition, you can't have it. You can't have a suffering Messiah. I'm like, you tell him. No, you tell him. You tell him. So somehow Peter's like, all right. <sighs> Look what happens. Peter took him aside. And began to rebuke him. How great is that verse? Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Sorry, you're not with me. Peter is now rebuking Jesus. Tell me that's not great. Peter puts his arm around Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. A word. Jesus, Jesus, listen. Jesus. I pulled you off to the side here because I, I didn't want to embarrass you in front of all your friends. But, Jesus, <laughs> you need to dial down the whole suffering <laughs> part and dial back up the whole conquering, miracle-working, superhero part, Jesus. Like, we've all been talking, and we see incredible potential in you, Jesus. If you keep working at it, you could really be somebody But here's the problem. You do all these miracles, and man, people love that. that. That plays so well into our campaign. I mean, you raise the dead, and you start feeding people. Man, I'm telling you, your miracles, like in the swing states, you are trailing, barely trailing Elijah in the polls. Your popularity's through the roof. We could take down Caesar. You could cross the river, and oh, Caesar's army kills. You just sort of Lazarus some of them back up, okay? And then we have a water-walking, bread fed zombie army okay, and Caesar can't stop you, okay, so when need do the dial up, people love the miracles, your miracles, Jesus, people eat that up, that's a, that's a pun on the feeding of the 5,000, so Jesus, you, you stick with the miracle stuff, and here's the deal, all this cross talk, all this, all this suffering, well, he hadn't said cross yet, all this suffering talk, there's no need for that, because uh, you can have the crown without all the suffering, And Jesus said, I heard that once before. Turning and seeing his disciples, I love this. He doesn't just rebuke Peter, he sees everybody. I know you're all thinking it. Turning, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. I heard that once before. I heard that once before. Oh, you can be king without the cross. You can have the crown without the suffering. I heard it once before. It was six chapters ago. And the evil one whispered in my ear, dude, you don't have to do all this suffering. You don't have to go the way of the cross. Just turn these stones into bread. Just drop the knee real quick. Worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. There's no need for all this suffering talk. I heard that once before. And that is satanic talk. To go and to conquer the world without going the way of the cross is a temptation of Satan. That is satanic talk. I heard it out of the, come out of the lips of my enemy. I'm not going to sit here and let it come out of the lips of my friend. So get behind me, Satan. That's satanic thinking. Your, head, your mind is on the things of man, not on things of God. the ultimate sort of mansplaining by Peter, failed. And I, I, you have to imagine Jesus so brokenhearted. It, if he does, as if to say, Peter, if you don't have a category for a suffering Messiah, you, you almost hear Peter saying, Jesus, Jesus. If you would just like, Jesus, if you would occasionally read your Bible, you would see there's no category for a suffering Messiah. Messiah. Can't you hear Jesus can't you imagine Jesus wanting to take a scroll open up thinking this group of disciples needs a summer long series on the book of Isaiah and he turns to Isaiah 53 which hypothetically let's just say hypothetically happens to be the Sunday school lesson for today And he points to Isaiah 53 and says, he did no sin, but the sin that we deserved was laid on him. He bore our iniquities, our transgressions were laid on him, and by his stripes we are healed. If that's not a suffering Messiah, what is it? It's right there. So if, if, Peter, if you don't have a category for a suffering Messiah, the problem's not with me. Your categories are wrong. And you don't know your Bible. Don't tell me I don't know. You don't know Isaiah 53. It's right there. Well, if that is a brand new understanding of what it means to be Christ, what does it mean to be a Christian? And here we must close. We're going to leave. We're going to leave the rest of this passage for next week, but we'll do one last verse this week and get ready. Uh, next week, he gives you four reasons for what he's about to say, and they all start with four. But this week, let's close with this. So, if that's what it means to suffer as Messiah, which By the way, do do you know why Messiah must suffer? I don't think we can leave here without saying this. Did did you see in that verse the word must? If you write in your Bible, just take a marker and write on your phone, must. Just circle the word must uh, in verse 33. Why does it say must? Um, If God is holy... And his character needs to be revealed as holy, right? So that's who he is. He's holy. He cannot simply sweep sin under the rug. He can't say, well, you know what? Sin's no big deal. Because what does that say to the victim of sin? And so forth and so on. So, 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 so he can't just sweep sin under the rug. If he's holy, then he's just. So that means he has to judge sin. He has to deal with it. Wrath must be poured out for sin. The problem is, if wrath is poured out for sin, we're gonna be crushed. But what if a substitute came? Well, who could bear the wrath of God? God himself, who deserves to bear the wrath of God, man. So you would need some sort of God-man. But if there were a God-man who bore the wrath of God, then, then God could be demonstrated to be both just and the one who justifies sinners. See, then God could be righteous, but also the one who makes right. Let me say it this way. The cross is the only way God could express his love without becoming an unrighteous God or express his righteousness without becoming an unloving God. At the cross, justice and mercy kiss. There's where you see the cross of Calvary. That's why he must suffer those many things. It's for us and our salvation. It's not some accidental death. Okay. So if that's what it means to be a, uh, I told you must was in verse 33. It's actually, I'm sorry, it's in 32. Thirty-one. It's somewhere in God's Word. It is clear that uh, it's in 31. Sorry. Oh, thank you. It was up here the whole time. Son of Man must suffer those things. Okay, so if that's what the Son of Man must do, then what does it mean to be a Christian? Three things. Jesus turned to the whole crowds and the disciples. I like that. Verse 34 points out that this isn't just for some super apostles. This isn't just for a small group of disciples. Some people think that, you know. They think, well, I'm just a regular old Christian. I'm not not a missionary or a super saint or like a super disciple. I'm just a Christian. Uh -uh, uh -uh. Uh-uh, uh-uh. There's no such thing as a disciple who's not a Christian or a Christian who's not a disciple. That's what it means. You are a disciple. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. So this is for the crowd and the disciples. This isn't for a select few. This is for everybody. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, three things, let him deny himself Take up his cross, follow me. This is the first time cross has been mentioned in Mark's gospel. Now the disciples' minds are completely blown. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What does deny self mean? When we think of denying ourself, we often think of denying something to ourself. So in other words, we say, well, I'm not going to have that cookie, or I'm not going to have that fourth dessert. (laughs) Um, I'm going to deny that to myself. That may be wise, but self-denial is really more than that. When, 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 when Jesus says, deny yourself, he's not saying deny something to yourself. He's saying deny self itself. In other words, take the almighty me off the throne of your life. God belongs on the throne of your life. So that the, the world doesn't revolve around you, you revolve around God. See, that's what deny self means. Take up your cross means put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. It is a call to self-sacrifice. It is a totality. Jesus does not offer you self-fulfillment or intellectual stimulation or intoxicating spiritual experience. He offers you a cross. He doesn't say, here's a money-back guarantee. Try it on and send it back if you don't like it, but it doesn't fit. Uh, God refuses to accept a minor role in your life. He requires a controlling place. You are either a Cross bearing, self denying follower of Jesus, or you are a self enthroning, cross rejecting disciple of the world. For some, this will mean, starting today, this verse will mean a rejection of an appetite for wealth. Wealth and greed and money for too long have been on the throne of your life, and to take up your cross means to crucify, to un- uh, leave the attraction you have for that, to deny it, to, to put it to death, to mortify that attraction, and to say, God alone is my shepherd. I'm gonna be generous. I'm gonna trust in him, and uh, wealth for too long has uh, held first place in your life, and that's uh, gonna be gone today. That's what it means, deny self and take up cross. Now, if you're hearing that, and you're thinking, huh, I don't struggle with that. That's not my sin. Then may I suggest to you, yours is pride and self-righteousness. <laughs> and, and, and you're a person who you cannot admit you're wrong. You have a problem with this. You have, you have pride. You struggle with pride. And, and, and no one can tell you you're wrong. You refuse to admit you're wrong. And if right now you're hearing this and you're going, yes, I can. I can admit it. Like, bro, you're proving my point. Okay? Uh, and so to, to crucify that, to put to death pride and self-righteousness And turn to humility. For others of you, this will be the verse. Listen, and there's a lot of young people here. Listen to me carefully. This will be the verse. It may not feel like it right now. Sometimes God's word is like a seed. It gets planted deep, but it will not return void. That parents, parents, listen to me. This will be the verse that launches your kid to the other side of the world in missions. Because of that verse, because of the one who said it, you will have to leave Coleman, Alabama, follow God's call in your life to be a missionary. And I pray say yes. Others of you, this will be the verse that means you stay in Coleman, Alabama and plant your life as a missionary. Whether sending or going, you're here on mission. Does that make sense? This is for everybody. For some parents, this means you're you're packing up a U-Haul and your kid is leaving to go on mission. You understand. Uh, Still others who are violent will have to put to death their desire for revenge. To those who are all about comfort you'll have to put to death the goal of your life being comfort to those who are faint-hearted and cowardly you have to put to death this craving for security let me say this as plainly as i can this is what i meant by it's not entertaining but it's important i'll say this as plainly as i can no good thing on earth was ever attained without trouble you've got to ask yourself has your christianity cost you anything this morning Does it entail any sacrifice? Has it the true stamp of heaven? Does your Christianity carry with it a cross? A religion which costs nothing is worth nothing. What does it cost you? There's a story about... Uh, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, it's good German name, Zinzendorf, he was the founder of the Moravian Church, Church of the Brethren. And he, um, in the 1700s, they were sending out missionaries all over the world. And the, some guys in his church heard about these poor slaves that were being human trafficked from Africa to the Caribbeans to work on plantations, particularly St. Thomas and St. Croix, and they were being trafficked. And they tried to reach them with the gospel and were turned away uh, by the authorities and they couldn't, God laid this people group on their heart and they couldn't figure out what to do. And so um, they decided there was only one thing to do in light of this verse. They decided we've got to reach them with the gospel. So these two brothers sold themselves into slavery that they might sail on that slave ship to the Caribbean, that they might reach these with the gospel. The legend has it, as the ship is leaving the shore, that the words they said back to these loved ones who they were never gonna see again was... uh, was this. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. What what does that mean? The lamb who was slain is Jesus Christ. What's the reward of his suffering on the cross? Souls reconciled and brought to God the Father. And what they're saying is, may he get more and more souls brought to him. Through our life, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. How do you, where does that come from? Is that, is that some sort of radical Christian life? That's, that's either crazy or it's crazy that a church, and I don't mean our church, I just mean in general, has for so long been discipled by the world. And we've just sort of bought in that kind of a nominal Christianity is just what's acceptable. Maybe that's not crazy at all. Maybe that's, no, you know, David Platt wrote this book years ago, Radical, and I thought it was really an important important book. If you haven't read it, you should read it. And his point is, Christianity is not just the American dream nicer, but what we call radicals, in fact, the normal Christian life. So let me ask you, has your Christianity cost you anything? Now, if you say, what was the sermon about today? Well, something like we got to sell ourselves into slavery or else we're not really good Christians. No, 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 no. No, you You don't make a big decision like that. I mean, it could be that God calls you to any number of things, but generally what happens is this. You start today and it says, follow me. You can't follow somebody from a million miles away. It means step by step with Jesus today. So what are you gonna do today? How will you deny yourself today so that others may benefit? Instead of you stepping over them, how can you allow others? What, what, What about you needs to be denied today? It could be a very little thing. What does it mean to take up your cross today? The Christocentric life, to reject the culture and to say, no, I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. What does it mean to follow me today? And I believe these little decisions, these little steps, add up to a lifetime of a long obedience in the same direction. I can't promise you it'll be a peaceful journey along the way. I can't promise you everything will go your way. Just the opposite. We're promised a cross. It's a long, hard road with a good, good end. Musicians are going to come and lead us in a time of response. So as Walker comes and gets set up here, um, I, you know, at the end of a sermon like this, you're supposed to get to this whole hope thing. Preachers are supposed to have hope, you know, at the end of this. And really the hope here is found in the verses that follow. So I, the best thing I, can, I know to tell you is if um, you want hope, uh, come back next week. And, <laughs> uh, but that seems uh, pretty cruel So let's leave uh, with a little hope. If you're like me and you hear a message like this, you're challenged and you're convicted, but you uh, will be crushed if you misunderstand. If you think for one minute that you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, and that if you begin to do that well enough, Jesus will accept you, that won't last 10 seconds. Instead, he's telling this to his disciples. They acknowledge him as Messiah. He loves them. They love him. And because they love him, because of your love for Jesus Christ, little by little, what tends to happen is he eases self off the throne of your life. As you behold him, the man of sorrows who took up his cross for us in our salvation, he denied himself all the way to the cross. And that love goes so deep into your heart. You identify with Christ so much that little by little you begin to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And here's... Here's how I know this works. Here's how I know it. Um, Peter uh, uh, finally got it. And I can prove it. So Peter, you know, Mr. You're the Christ. And what does that mean? Powerful! And it's like he had never heard Isaiah 53. Like, hello? he Like a lamb led to the slaughter is silent, you know. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't do anything wrong, but our sins were laid on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You've never heard that, Peter? Well, he got it, and I can prove it. Mr. Messiah means conquering king, and there's nothing to do with suffering. He finally got it. I can prove it because he um, he wrote two letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, to his church. And here's what he wrote in his first letter. What a change. Listen, what a change. He wrote, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. This is Isaiah 53. But continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. You got it. And so too will we, with everything you've got, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. It's a long, hard road with a good, good end. Let's pray. Uh, God, this uh, is a heavy word, it's a difficult word to consider whether or not following you has cost us anything. Have we given up anything for your sake or the gospel's? Or have we just blended into our culture? This is a a convicting word for me. And I know it must be convicting for my brothers and sisters, my fellow church members. So God, I'm, I'm asking you, Lord, to challenge us, but also build us up with your grace. I failed so many times to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. But your grace, it's your grace that is sufficient. I can do all things through you who gives me strength. In our church, we can do all these things through you who give us strength. So let your strength flow through us. Today, let us make a decision that denies self, that puts you on the throne of our hearts. Let that happen today. And if there's anybody here who has not yet decided for you, Jesus, that they have not yet made their decision about who you are, let today be the day of their salvation. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.